You're in the water loop. Waterloop is made possible in part by grants from Springpoint Partners and the Walton Family Foundation. Waterloop. Hi, this is Travis with Waterloop. Water conservation is very important to me, and I bet it is to all of you. That's why I use High Sierra shower heads in my house, and I'm so happy to have them as a supporter of this podcast. High Sierra carries the EPA WaterSense label for efficiency and uses 40% less water than conventional low-flow showerheads. 40%. The model I have uses just a gallon and a half per minute. And because of their unique nozzle design, it's patented. Nobody else has it. It maximizes efficiency of water and energy use, but doesn't sacrifice on performance. You still get a powerful shower. Use promo code LOOP20 for 20% off at HighSierraShowerHeads.com. You're in the Waterloop. Hi, welcome to Waterloop. This is Travis. Very excited to be joined by Paul Bruchet. He is with Reader Creek Ranch in Colorado, a family-owned business. Paul, glad we could chat for the podcast. Thanks, Travis. It's great to be here. Yeah, we've got a lot of things to explore with agriculture and, and Colorado and the Colorado River. But let's let's start with your story. What's your what's your family history with agriculture in Colorado? Uh, five generations uh, strong for for myself and my brothers. Uh, the next my kids and and uh, my nieces and nephews would be six generations of ag. Um, we started on the East Slope or Front Range, just north of Denver. Um, kind of grew into primarily dry land farming, but always have had different irrigated forages and livestock through the generations. And then as uh, the Denver area grew, uh, my family relocated up on the West Slope, uh, right on the main stem of the Colorado River, near a, a smaller town called Kremling, uh, mm-hmm. where we run a cow-calf operation, <clears throat> um, irrigates, put up hay. Uh, we diversify our business a little bit with outfitting, um, both some on the uh, the big game hunting, but primarily fly fishing, um, guided fly fishing services. Lease some of the neighbor's property um, <clears throat> for that. We became very involved um, in water matters based on a, a drought of the early 2000s. Um, and with that, um, you know, have, have worked, have had the privilege, I should say, of, of working in a number of different collaborations on addressing uh, some river health issues in sustainable agriculture and yeah. um, continue that today. Yeah. What, what took you guys uh, to relocate? What was, the, what was the reason for that? It became more and more challenging, um, you know, where we lived. I, I'm still always blown away at the story. My my dad went to high school on dirt roads, um, <laughs> and by the time that I was growing up, Federal Boulevard was uh, paved two lanes each direction, 55 miles an hour, um, not quite dirt roads anymore. <laughs> so, you know, urban growth just kind of grew around us, and so it became somewhat urban farming. It was challenging to get equipment. It was challenging with livestock and, and neighborhood fences, you know, surrounding fields with cattle and, and other livestock. So it, it became challenging, and I, I think that, um, you know, while, while we miss it there, it was certainly, you know, a welcomed move to me to, to go a little bit more remote and up in the mountains. 
Yeah, yeah, awesome. I mean, Colorado's had just explosive growth, right, over the past several decades. Um, it's been growing for a while. It's it's a beautiful place. I think that pulls a lot of people there. Um, we'll dive into the water issues deeply, but could you talk a little bit about how you get water, how you manage your water? Just give some insight into for people what that looks like for someone doing your type of, of ranching. Yep, so my family... Um we irrigate out of three different water resources and a, a couple of them, um, you know, different head gates. Um, one of them is a leased water right from Denver water on the Williams Fork river known as the big Lake ditch. Um, that ditch travels almost 28 miles hugging a mountainside, uh, to deliver water to its location. Um, we have water rights out of reader Creek, um, very simple irrigation, much smaller tributary and, and hay meadows and, a lot closer proximity to uh, where the, the creek is. So um, a little bit simpler operation. And then we have two different uh, diversions out of the main stem of the Colorado River. Um, one of them is the, the KB ditch, um, which is a, a shared ditch of five different landowners. And then one of them is uh, in this pump and ditch system, which is a shared pump um, from two different landowners, um, us, and, uh, us and the neighbors. So it's putting water into ditches and then um from there on to the fields where we irrigate okay how have you seen the water situation you know in colorado change over time and and hear about the changes from the the generations before you you know your family what's what's been the story well it's really fascinating because one of the things that we've had to be very engaged with um the Colorado Big Thompson project is one of uh, several different trans-basin diversion projects uh, within the headwaters of the Colorado River. And so, you know, in perspective of uh, the main uh, acronym CBT for Colorado Big Thompson um, of the CBT project, you know, we're about uh, 30 minutes downstream of the, the major reservoirs and um, pumps and pipe system that take it to the front range. And when they constructed that project, along with many others, uh, you know, typically if you look at some of the testimony um, that occurred during the time of the agreements that were tied to those uh, water projects, um, it was really one of the greatest challenges for agriculture and uh, residents of the Colorado River Basin was really uncontrollable uh, spring hydrology, the big water flows and otherwise. And so some of these projects were, you know, thought to um be a positive thing for the river system and those that rely on it for um, their livelihoods, uh, basically water control facilities. And then through hydrology and um, a number of other things, but continued projects and, and how life always goes, I think that those that live in, in our specific location, um, just above the confluence of the Blue River, um, you know, I don't think that we'd ever seen a modern river, river system at, at as low of a flow as it was in 2002, 2003, 2004, and you can really stretch that a year on either side, um, where we saw a very depleted river system. <clears throat> and so for us in that location, that was a, a significant wake up to what, um, you know, a, a modern river system can look like between uh, different diversions from it. And then also what uh, Mother Nature is providing as, as far as snowpack for given hydrology. And so that was a, a very eye-awakening moment for residents. The county I live in is Grand County, and Grand County is the most heavily 
Trans Basin Diverted County in the state of Colorado. So what should be flowing west down the Colorado River, a, a pretty heavy chunk of that in Grand County, um, is diverted through different projects to go to the East Slope or the Front Range. Um, and um, so we, we were kind of on the earlier side of seeing what impacts, um, you know, now are often referred to, I would say more commonly now than 20 years ago, is overall uh, climate change. Mm. Um, and, and we're seeing the impacts of that, you know, it, it started off, you know, early two thousands with, uh, some really bleak years of, of water supply and flow and natural hydrology. And then, um, you know, exclamation point last year with Colorado's wildfire season and much of the West, I, I shouldn't just say Colorado's, but Colorado in particular had, uh, the three largest wildfires in state's history all in the same season and, and some of them burning clear, um, into later parts of October, um, and so our, you know, looking at our soil moisture contents and where we are as far as, you know, drought monitoring, you know, we're, we're very much in um, an extended drought period. Yeah, it's interesting talking to you and, and others out west, how you use the word hydrology and not just weather or, or, or even climate change or anything like that. You know, you really use this word talking about the, the water cycle and, and where it goes. It's just interesting that that's part of the vocabulary uh, out there, not just with scientists, but with, you know, every everybody I seem to chat with. Um, critical stuff. So what's being asked of the agriculture community these days of farmers and ranchers when it comes to uh, water management. There's clearly this incredible attention being paid in Colorado across the West to like, hold on, hydrology is changing. We got to do things different. What's being asked of, of you and, and others like you? Well, Colorado is, you know, unique within the basin, but really the entire upper basin, you know, we, we share, um, some of the th same things going on, but in Colorado, um, about 80% of our watershed is on the West slope. Um, but about 80% of our population is on the East slope. And so naturally it creates a little bit of, um, an interesting relationship between East slope and West slope, um, based on water supply and, and population base for a number of reasons. Um, that being said, as we go into a, a time frame where our, um, supply and demand curves are um, moving the wrong direction more rapidly than maybe some of us thought. Um, we, at, at least um, currently speaking, I think we're in a place of, of ultimate collaboration and, and partnership working together because then within our state, you not only have the conversation of um, East Slope, West Slope, but then we also have the conversation of uh, the different stakeholder groups um, of water supply, you know, being agriculture, municipal, industrial, um, environmental. And so I think that the state of Colorado set up a, a really great system, um, back in 2005, um, with the basin roundtables and the interbasin compact committee. Um, the concept being that each major river basin in the state, um, has a grassroots organization to work on water conversations within the state. And, and the timing of 2005, um, wasn't random. It was um, in response to uh, those years of drought that we faced and some smart individuals that put together that bill. And so within roundtable dialogue and, and, you know, where we're going, I think that we still have this continued sense of uh, collaboration and partnership. And I think that, you know, we also recognize that within our own state and basin, you know, the the secret to making this all work is all of us working together um, because the way that our state functions and we look at economic impacts to both healthy river systems, agriculture, 
you know, thriving municipalities, you know, there's kind of a circle of life here that, that we're all on together. And so it's, it's my hope that as this, you know, I think that, that many, many knew this was coming. Um, I don't think that that's a, a secret, you know, regarding the supply demand curve, but I think that um, the time frame, front time frame in which it's happened, um, I think based on the, the lack of snowpack and, and hydrology to get back to uh, the comment, <laughs> uh, it's maybe happened a little bit faster than what we anticipated. So with the structure of the roundtables and the Colorado Water Conservation Board, um, the fact that Colorado completed its first state water plan in 2015, you know, I think that we have the, the necessary tools and infrastructure to deal with the conversation. Um, then the question becomes, you know, what, what this really looks like and how we're going to charge for it as a state. And some of that, you know, is very location and basin um, uh, unique because of the, the needs of each basin. And then generally speaking, some of it <clears throat> is, is pretty well spread because within the Colorado River itself, um, that's our, our one river system in the state that based on different uh, uh, trans-basin diversion projects, it, it touches all four corners of our state and, and certainly every sector of water stakeholder. And so working on solutions on the Colorado River, not only are some things unique to the state, but also the upper basin in general, the upper basin states, um, you know, in our drought contingency planning, working on um, different mechanisms of dealing with uh, ongoing and prolonged drought and including uh, demand management and how we're going to move forward with some of these conversations. And I think that the, uh, the, the decision body, the Colorado water conservation board is doing a very good job of, of a public process to kind of work through um, some necessary steps of where we perhaps can find some water conservation. And, and that's what's, um, you know, kind of also unique in, in our time in history is that we have this demand management topic, which is, temporary voluntary conserved water um, to be delivered to Lake Powell and a storage facility there that was authorized by the Bureau of Reclamation for 500,000 acre feet um, that is essentially an insurance policy to our obligations to the lower basin. Um, and while that conversation is ongoing, it, it's very specific in what it is and that we all have to do our best to remember. Sometimes we get so deep into conversations of demand management that really when we look at a more holistic and long-term approach to water supply, um, you know, we're going to have to find some mechanisms of water conservation because we certainly can't keep growing as a population the way we are um, warming up as a climate, essentially needing to use more water um, based on the temperature difference um, and then seeing a continued decrease in uh, snowpack and, and long-term precipitation. So it's quite fascinating, but based on some weather stations in Kremlin and some analysis that we just did, you know, we're talking this year compared to the, the previous five years before that, we were looking at about one third of the total precipitation in the Kremlin area um, that we have even over the last five. And then the last five years, um, we're depleted about 20% of what we have been the 20 years before that. So, I mean, it's, it's a direction that is not very good. Yeah, yeah, that's t the math that does not add up there. Um, to, from the outside, some people would maybe expect there to be tension or conflict between the different groups, right? You, the, between the ag sector and cities and utilities and industry and conservation groups. But you're saying that uh, from the inside, it's actually pretty collaborative and people all realizing that you're in this situation together and have to work together to, to find a sustainable way forward. You know, I think it depends on which meeting and which topic we're talking about. Don't <laughs> yeah. get me wrong. It's, it's easy to, to bring up some words or some topics of conversation that can create a lot of tension. Mm. Um, 
but I think that there's more of a recognition now than, than ever. And, you know, we've seen it working with um, a number of the NGOs lately that I think that the, the partnership and in, in what we care about for environmental resiliency, um, agriculture is unquestionably, you know, the largest user of, of water supply within the basin. And so if we care about other things and then, then partnering and working with agriculture is a, is a very positive direction. And anytime, you know, in these conversations where, you know, things can, you know, get a little heated or tough. I think that we all have to and have a responsibility as, as water leaders in our state to, to pinch ourselves and rem remind ourselves that, you know, we, we still have a window of time of opportunity here for solution. Um, something that can be, you know, more sustainable. But when we're talking about state water, and I tend to drift to the Colorado River too much as that's, um, you know, my, my homeland and, um, you know, what, what my family relies on. Um, but, you know, we're talking about a basin that um, 40 million people rely on its water supply. Um, and so there's a lot at stake and there's a lot of stakeholders at the table. And I, I hope that, you know, history would prove um, that as, you know, more arid climates grow in population, um, the acquisition of agricultural water rights um, for, you know, ag buy and dry is a very real thing of history. And when we start looking at um, secondary impacts of, of what agriculture does, not only um, to state and basin economies, um, you know, but also some of the um, other benefits to the landscape um, that ag participates in, perhaps going all the way to talking about um, soil health and carbon sequestration, um, wildlife habitat, riparian corridor health habitat, um, all the things that so many of us care about that sometimes we think are just um, always there, um, you know, agriculture is a very important part of the water cycle um, in all of the West um, and certainly in the state of Colorado. And so trying to find ways of balancing that to not infringe on private property rights um, as they would be, but then rather to, to look towards other flexible solutions and how we can look at the system a little bit more holistically, how we can be better caretakers of our water supply, um, how we can look at um, flexibility within our production uh, to find water savings. Um, you know, I think all these things are critical. And then same thing with the municipal sector is um, uh, the study that I read not very long ago still shows that about 40% of Front Range Colorado water supply is used for um, outdoor irrigation purposes, you know, much of that being, um, you know, visual landscape, greenscape and outdoor spaces. And so, <clears throat> You know, I, I would say that these are happy conversations when we can say that we'll all, you know, chip in to try and find solutions and ways to operate, especially, um, you know, in times of, of drought. But it, it, it's going to take all the sectors working together. Yeah, absolutely. There's one other uh, party that I wanted to ask you about is, uh, and I've seen a lot of articles about water speculators and, you know, Wall Street kind of firms trying, you know, buying up land. Um, and what from your from your seat, what do you what do you see going on 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 that front where, you know, water kind of as a as a real commodity and outside interests uh, kind of poking around, if you will, in, in Colorado and, and trying to kind of, uh, you know, put, put that money, that value on water and so forth. What's, what's going on and how's that being taken? It's very interesting, you know, for those of us that are high stakes in this, it's not necessarily new conversation at all. Mm. I think that there's been a lot more written about it recently. Mm. 
And I think that there has been more activity on that front as we continue to learn and understand, um, you know, the supply demand curve. Um, that being the case, it um, is incredibly challenging to, to try and understand the right things to do because, you know, for, for some landowners, um, you know, their, their water right, um, you know, might be their 401k or might be what's necessary, um, you know, in a, in a financial hardship and in a time and um, prior, prior appropriation doctrine and other laws within the state should protect those private property rights. But when we talk about it being uh, potentially, you know, something that would be viewed as a, as a commodity, um, you know, with acquisition and trading, um, it's not only scary for a scarcity conversation, but if we, if we kind of expand beyond, you know, the water commodity, beyond the, the, the scarcity and start to talk in other areas of the world and in our country with water supply, um, owning water and looking to, um, you know, sell trade for high dollars to supply for people is, is a pretty scary thing in my mind. Um, it's, okay. it's one of the required things for all human survival. And, and I think we need to be really delicate how we handle um, the future. And, and I look at it as I try to not over-focus on that side of things, especially, um, you know, regarding um, anything legal. I don't have a legal mind to begin with um, and went a different career path intentionally. But I think that it's alternative to solutions for ag producers, um, you know, to feel like there are other options, you know, other than that being on the table is is a, is a better direction to go, which potentially and hopefully equals a lot greater flexibility, um, you know, within our water supply system about how we can can use our water and still grow food. Yeah. Because I, you know, two things on that one, you know, a, a basin that relies, you know, 40 million people, you know, for food supply. But that also being the case is I, I think that it's fascinating to look at and understand statistics of percentage of people a generation ago that were tied to agricultural businesses and then look at the percentage of population that currently is tied to ag business. And, you know, we have a, a growing population base and a shrinking amount of people that are, are skilled um, in the um, ability to grow and raise food. And I know I like to eat. Um, <laughs> we we like all do. Yeah. To, <laughs> I like to feed my children. Um, and so that's, that's something that we all need to pay attention to. And I, I like to think that, you know, back to the spirit of collaboration, you know, we can gain trust in ag producers working with other people, you know, by demonstrating and showing some support. But, you know, that that's that's going to require a much more holistic approach, you know, to, to what the conversation is. So it's it's certainly around and, and it's impacting myself and my neighbors, you know, more recently, certainly than in the past. Um, but um, I am I'm hoping that uh, responsible acquisitions of those water rights and careful use of these water rights that we're still looking at, um, you know, food production within our basin in our state. Sure. I want to uh, shift a little bit and ask actually about water conservation, water management. Could you just kind of give a few examples of maybe some of the more quote, basic things you do to be careful in your water management or conserve water. And then I want to ask about maybe some of those more kind of innovative exploratory programs or, or efforts that you've, you've done. Well, and I, I think I, I've got to start by making sure, you know, water efficiency, you know, versus water conservation. And, and so water efficiency might look like uh, diverting less 
um, to be able to use. Um, and then true conservation is actually using less water. Um, water conservation within ag, oftentimes efficiency projects in ag can actually lead towards a higher consumptive use rate because you're putting the water to the crop in as efficient a way of possible maximizing your crop's production and therefore increasing evapotranspiration of the plants. And so um, in certain locations and certain tributaries, when we're talking about stream health or other things, efficiency projects are needed, necessary, and a wonderful thing. Um, that being said, in other locations, when we're looking at you know, some form of flood irrigation where somebody might see a ditch going and spreading, you know, large volumes of water over a field. Um, in often circumstances, you know, that groundwater return flow, the actual consumptive use rate of what's being used by the plant or evapor evaporation um, is, is much different. And a lot of that return water is going back to the system in delayed timing in areas where there's, you know, significant reservoirs or other diversion projects, sometimes those return flows to the system and the timing of them are very critical. And so we need to be very delicate on that conversation too, because I don't think that it's a, a one size fits all. But within the, the conservation arena, I think that this is my greatest open push right now is uh, to see more um, research projects, uh, pilot demonstration projects. I think that there's so much about ag use in water that we don't know. Um, the Kremlin area ranchers uh, participated um, with the Colorado Basin Roundtable um, this year in a water conservation pilot project to really understand our consumptive use rates more um, on high altitude perennial fields. And we're overlaying that, looking at soil health conditions, um, and then overlaying that, looking at the different forage types within them. So we're trying to greater understand what it is we're growing, how much water it's really using, and then what those overall impacts are. My, my hope with that is that that can lead to greater conservation projects but in the, the lens of doing it through given data, science and research, you know, where we're making responsible decisions based on known facts, um, you know, in, instead of other guesses. And uh, it just becomes a very delicate, tricky conversation because every tributary or every major river system, you know, different impacts between dams and where water is delivered. And, and like I said, I, I think that conservation practices are, are certainly possible and needed uh, we just need to understand their longer term impacts um, and then same thing with the efficiencies i'm certainly not trying to say that um, you know using diverting less water can't be a, a good thing for a river system but they truly are very unique um, basin to basin and location to location uh, is is were you talking about uh, remote sensing work i think there was some some stuff that's happened with that recently Yep. And that uh, largely what this project was shaped to do was to truth test different mechanisms of actually monitoring consumptive use. So, you know, we, we have the very expensive, very research involved, um, tons and tons of data uh, types of projects going on. We have very simple wet wells um, and, and other ways of uh, sensing clear then to remote sensing um, and, and looking at, um, at it in a, in a whole different capacity and then reflecting on the accuracy of all these things because I'll just say not, not every state or perhaps even different organizations within the state of Colorado even agree to how much water um, different crops use for um, you know, their, their production um, in, an, in an ag capacity. And so really, truly trying to truth test those and understand um, how we can measure, monitor, and, and then what that relationship is to soil health hopefully gives us some 
tools to work with going into the future. Gotcha. Um, you mentioned that that agriculture can have some role in addressing climate change. I wondered if you could kind of expand on that thought a little bit. Well, it's it's interesting, and it it gets. I I tend to be a little bit of a dreamer, but um, you know, <laughs> we, we, we need we need that we need that attitude. You know. <laughs> well, in 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 my studies and research, you know, one of the more immediate impacts that we can have to climate change is by addressing our soil health. Um, and that's for a, a number of different reasons. And then the, the, the pathway to get there can also have several different impacts, but it's really how we're growing food and then what the soil and carbon sequestration can look like. But when we, when we take a look on the negative side of things, if we say, well, we're challenged in water supply, and if we are buy and dry agriculture, you know, in the Southwest and decreasing the amount of potential land and acreage um, that would have positive impacts to the carbon footprint that we have um, to supply water in other directions. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure that the, the scale would be overly significant depending on how much, well, let me rephrase that. The scale would be important reflecting on the number of acres involved, but if we're taking ag out of production and we're not addressing the soil health in the capacity of doing that, there's no, no question that we're actually accelerating climate change. So we're like feeding um, the circle that we're looking to go down. And so I feel that both in the, the water con conversation, it, it kind of seems to me in agriculture, it comes back to soil health. And then certainly if we're talking about carbon sequestration or the carbon footprint, all signs go back to soil health. And so, um, you know, I go to sleep at night thinking about soil health, soil health, <laughs> soil health, and, and what we can really do to have positive impacts because in, in, in my best effort, you know, with the education and background that I have, I, I really do try and look at this situation in water as holistically as possible. You know, seven states, um, Republic of Mexico and 40 million people that rely on water supply and what we can do to have positive impacts. And I think that taking that more holistic approach of sustainability, um, you know, I, I hope and pray that my children are able to live a life where you can still catch cold water fish in the Colorado river, um, grow food, um, and enjoy life. And in, in my, uh, life cycle in the last 20, 25 years of watching this play out, you know, in the river, there has been a drastic change. And so I think it's going to take some, um, it's going to take some great shifting. Um, but also I, I think, you know, I, I reflect back to the partnership piece. Um, if, if we know the importance of water for food supply, if we respect the, the health of our river systems and, and also, you know, what I look at as our municipal partners, I, I do think we have solutions here, but it's time to get innovative and it's time to understand too um, the importance of these uh, topics moving forward. Well, you know, some of those nights you go to bed saying soil health, thinking about soil health, you got to be thinking about fishing too, right? Like uh, that, that has to fit into those, those thoughts. Um, it's, it's a, a business for you, obviously still something you like. So what's going on with, with the water when it comes to, to fishing? What, I mean, what have you seen out there? Well, you know, we've seen, um, there was a, a project, um, forgive me, it was either 1980 or 1981. Um, there was a, a macro invertebrate count on the major riffles of the main stem Colorado River, um, you know, going down from where there's a, a small reservoir system um, down to Gore Canyon. And then based on impacts of trans-basin diversions and, and all the hundreds of things that have happened in between, um, incl including climate change and the lack of native water flow, um, that study was followed up. And the results of 
the impact to the macroinvertebrates is is mind blowing. And I, I don't want to quote it because I'm sure it'll be wrong. But I think if you take um, stoneflies, caddis, and, and mayflies and blend them together, um, you know, we're talking about almost 50% of the macroinvertebrate population has gone in the Colorado River system. And anytime, um, you know, you're looking at uh, cold water fishery. Um, the, the number of fish that are there largely are there in support of the number of macroinvertebrates that they have for food supply. Um, there are, of course, are other factors, but um, that's the primary one. And so, you know, the Colorado River has seen a, a decrease in, in its fish biomass uh, along with the macros over a period of time. There's a number of projects um, to address that, though. And, and here we go back to the partnership piece where in Grand County alone, um, several efforts, uh, an organization learning by doing um, partnered by the major trans-basin diverters, Grand County, Trout Unlimited, um, Colorado Parks and Wildlife, uh, a number of organizations that I'm forgetting, but um, have built uh, several projects in um, the Fraser River Basin, uh, main tributary to the Colorado, that has proved to have wonderful impacts um, for the health of the fishery. Um, I've been privileged and proud to work with my neighbors over a 12-mile stretch of the Colorado River for the last seven years on some restoration activity down there and studied fish science is demonstrating that our, our projects are working to gain back our fish population. You know, some of it becomes very complex to discuss, but um, you know, a simple version of it would be looking to, to reshape a river at a, at a lower flow, you know, a modernized river system um, so that all of those impacts to what it does, um, some related specifically to water temperature, but also to velocities uh, macroinvertebrates get choked out of river systems when they don't have the hydraulic push of water to turn cobble. That creates the interstitial space in the cobble um, that is the habitat for the macroinvertebrates. And so by narrowing a channel width, you'll see turning cobble at a lower flow than you otherwise would. You know, all of those projects looking to balance, um, you know, that low flow channel, but also to not take away, um, you know, what is the, the total floodplain or the, the total uh, capacity of the river system at a high flow. And so they've become more scientific and engineered than I made it sound. Um, but really, when we look at them, they're pretty simple projects, but they they have proven to work. And, and we continue to construct um, actually right before this call I was on um, with the engineer and the NRCS um, on our slate of 2021 projects that we're beginning engineering work for. So um, we can see positive impacts and, and those sorts of projects, you know, this is a group of ranchers who historically have not partnered with these kinds of organizations, but our um, fiscal agent for all these grants has been Trout Unlimited, um, partnered with uh, American Rivers, the Nature Conservancy funding partners in the Colorado Basin Roundtable, the Colorado Water Conservation Board, um, the federal government through the NRCS. Um, and then other foundational support. It's pretty remarkable what we've been able to accomplish in that lens of collaboration. You know, one of the producers in this project, my my very favorite age-old story is um, told me once upon a time ago that if I ever said the words Trout Unlimited back to back on his ranch, he'd run me off his place. And then <laughs> here, here we are seven years later and Trout Unlimited has been the fiscal agent to four different grants that he's had. And um, not, not an intention here of why we built a river project because it was a very very necessary thing for their ranch and their land. Um, but their fishing is productive enough now that um, it's actually part of our leased business for our guided fly fishing business. And so some of these, you know, local impacts, you know, have incredible impact. But when we look at, again, we're talking the Colorado River, the, the West, the state of Colorado, I'm very proud of a 12 mile project, but that's 12 miles in a, a lot of river um, that is, you know, living in a different age than it used to. 
And so I feel very privileged, but one of the things that we always look at in these partnerships is, you know, what we did in our, our points of success and how these projects can be um, viewed and duplicated, um, hopefully as much as possible where we're, we're finding these balances of um, agriculture and environmental resiliency um, within the same project type. Yeah. Well, recreation, I guess, is one of the, the stakeholder groups, if you will, that I left out earlier. You know, that's a huge part of, of life in Colorado is, is, you know, rafting and fishing and uh, the water needs to be there for those things to, to go on for sure. Last thing I want to ask you, um, you know, you kind of, when we talked before, you talked about how you kind of maybe begrudgingly do some of these media conversations, right? Um why, why do you decide to go ahead and, and chat with people like me and others at this point? I feel education and outreach in any capacity to larger populations to really understand what challenges we face um, with our water future are moments that we have to seize. It's, it's not typically a very common conversation at dinner tables. Uh, you know, growing up even in my own family, being in agriculture, um, I don't think my can't remember my parents bringing up water supply, um, supply demand curves as a topic of conversation through my entire youth, you know, and then my wife and I, uh, very blessed to have our son born this last July. And I almost made, named him demand management Bruchet. Um, <laughs> the water conversation has shifted <laughs> in a generation. And so, um, you know, that being the case, we, we, I think that we just have to seize every moment to educate on it. And I think it's something that is of such critical importance. And, and again, where um, I'm, I'm continuing to study and learn more of this, you know, soil health and, and greater agriculture, regenerative agriculture topic, you know, with the carbon. But we need to take a very close look at, um, you know, how we operate, um, what we have, you know, expected of our natural resources. Um, and, and how that's going to have impacts to the general population over a period of time. Um, and I feel sometimes in, in water conversation, there's a, a handful of stakeholders that are really trying to um, work for solutions for the larger population. But I feel that educating the larger population of what these challenges are, um, are our greatest asset, you know, especially when it comes to the, the water conservation piece. I'm just not sure um, many people know um, how critical water supply is. And mm. I should say water supply in the West and I should say, you know, water quality everywhere. Mm. Yeah. Well said. I mean, that's definitely what I'm trying to do on my end here is just uh, put conversations out that can help with awareness and, and help find solutions. So, um, hilarious about, uh, educating your kids so much on water and talking about it so much that you almost gave that, that nickname. I mean, I, I talk about the stuff so much. My kids, they've labeled me a national geographic nerd. I'm like, well, I'll wear that as a badge of honor then guys. So, yeah, that's a great thing. Well, I, I joke, I, my three and a half year old daughter, uh, she's pretty brilliant, but, um, not joking. You and you were making the comment about hydrology. Um, you know, she'll ask me, dad, are you done working? And I'll say no. And she'll say taxes or hydrology. And I'm going, <laughs> yeah, yeah. She's got it figured out. <laughs> She's got it figured out early. Nice. Well, Paul, I appreciate you coming on here and I appreciate the, the perspective and the information, really valuable, really great stuff. So thanks a ton. It's been a total pleasure, Travis, and I appreciate what you do too. So thank you very much. Waterloo. Thanks everyone for listening to today's episode. 
A special thanks to Waterloop supporters, Springpoint Partners, and the Walton Family Foundation. The Waterloop Podcast is sponsored by High Sierra Showerheads, the smart, stylish way to save energy, water, and money while enjoying a powerful shower. Use promo code LOOP20 for 20% off at HighSierraShowerheads.com. If you like Waterloop, please subscribe to the YouTube channel or your favorite podcast platform. Follow us on social media and visit Waterloop.org to sign up for updates. Waterloop, Waterloop, Waterloop.